you need a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. If you're going to be doing this work, if you're going to be doing mindfulness, if you're going to be really starting to pay attention to the way you are in the world, it's either you develop a healthy sense of humor or you start to go crazy because you will never live up to your expectations. You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode number 245. Today, we're talking about how not to be a hot mess with Devin and Craig Hayes. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I help smart, thoughtful parents stay calm so they can have strong, connected relationships with their children. I've been practicing mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting Course and Membership, and I'm the author of Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Welcome back. I am uh, glad to have you here, my friend. I hope you are doing well hanging in there with the whole crazy pandemic world thing. You know, I think we have to just acknowledge like what's going on. It's like we're living in multiple crises. You know, we're we're living in the the health crisis of the pandemic. We're living in the economic crisis of the pandemic. We're still in the climate crisis. Yikes, you know, and, you know, there's a whole moral and social crisis of the racial justice movement. It's a lot going on and you're probably working and you have your kids at home and yeah. So there's, we're holding a lot right now. I just want to acknowledge that because it's, it's a lot. And so I hope this episode will help. <laughs> In just a moment, I'm going to be sitting down with Devin and Craig Hayes, who mentor Dharma practitioners. That means they mentor practitioners who are uh, following the path of enlightenment led uh, laid out by the Buddha. And so they mentor Dharma practitioners and lead meditation retreats online. And they wrote the book called A Survival Guide for Modern Life. And, you know, it, it really does this whole idea like, you know, world is this whole world is going to hell in a handbasket, right? This is how a lot of us feel right now. It's it's overwhelming. And so, um, you know, I talked to Devin, a meditation teacher and Craig, meditation coach and therapist about these really beautiful six guiding life principles inspired by the wisdom of mindfulness that will help you guide your way. Um, so there's some really important things I want you to take away from this episode, some important pieces. Number one, they call it don't be a jerk, but I say it's all about communication, right? This is all about communicating. This, this episode, we talk a ton about how to communicate what's going on. Number two, that body awareness is a big part of communication. And then number three is that mindfulness is a whole package with guidelines and values. It's not just 
about meditation. Before we dive in, I want to let you know that I have a few spots available in my small group coaching program called the Mindful Mama Transformation Coaching Group. We start soon and registration ends on Friday, October 23rd, 2020. And this whole, it's a group to really help you. We go through all the mindful parenting principles, but it's about more than just parenting. It's about you as a mom. And this is where we show you how to create a, a new story about your life and how to show up. And we do it with this, you know, loving guidance, community, community support, this like small sisterhood of women. And we, I help you bring mindfulness into your daily habits, transform your relationship to yourself, your relationships with others and your parenting. And it's really about feeling awakened and confident and ready to dive into life, having clarity and self-acceptance and self-love, less stress, more ease, and I'm here to show you how. So if this is calling to you, go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching. See what, what has happened to others who have joined the coaching groups. It really is a powerful program and it can really change your life. And it's really about taking time and taking time to invest your energy, your time, your your money into what is most important to you, this inner work of showing up for life in the way you want to show up for life, right? Like this amazing. So check it out. And if you'd like a spot, reach out to me or go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching, learn more about it and what we do. And I would love to talk to you more about it. And now, without further ado, let's talk about a little more about how not to be a hot mess with Devin and Craig Hayes. Devin and Craig, thanks so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast. Yeah, thanks for having us, Hunter. It's a real pleasure. I am so to happy here. to have you here. And you have an a book with a very interesting title. Um, so do you want to tell me the say the title? Yeah, it's called How Not to Be a Hot Mess, A Survival Guide for Modern Life. <laughs> How Not to Be a Hot Mess. It seems like everybody's kind of overwhelmed and in a lot of ways are, are a hot mess. I mean, we have a, mm-hmm. we have a world where people are, you know, at least in the United States, kind of a culture where people aren't, aren't taken care of, you know, we don't take care of each other, mm-hmm. you know, there's like chaos in the world and there's a lot of difficulty and all of those things. Um, but I think even personally, like we're just, I don't know. I don't, I don't think we're, that's like kind of some of the work that I do is to, we're not taught as kids or we're not modeled you know, how to take care of ourselves in some ways and in sort of the most important ways, right? Those emotional, mental, emotional ways. And, um, and we need, we need to learn those things. I mean, so I'd love to dive into where you say, um, at one point you in your book, you described that, you know, Devin, you're getting straight A's in high school and Craig, you're getting high and playing rock music <laughs> <laughs> on the edge of being thrown out of somebody's history class. So I can relate to both of you in some ways because I was I was getting A's, but I was like getting high and hanging out in the cemetery, mm-hmm. you know, and and going down to the the shore and building a bonfire and you know getting caught up in kinds of trouble. So 
so maybe starting with you, Craig, like how did now you're, you're talking to me from a, a Dharma center, you have mm-hmm. your, your head shaved, you teach <laughs> mindfulness to everybody. So, so, so where did, where did you start from, from getting high and playing rock music to now where you are? Yeah. It was a long time ago. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Been 25 years. When I started, I, I had a lot of, I had a lot of sort of like tumult in my teenage life, not just internally, not just for me, but my, my family and my community, I think were also very tumultuous. So my mom owned this beautiful bookstore when I was a kid, which was the best and the worst part of my childhood in a lot of ways. The best because I grew up in a bookstore. And how cool is that? That's pretty cool. The worst because it made no money and ended us just completely bankrupting her. And so by the time I was 15 years old, she'd lost the bookstore. The bank had foreclosed on our house. She had slid into alcoholism. And I moved out and moved in with my dad and uh, was on this kind of, um, actually, if I look at it now, I would say I was very anxious. But then I just thought I was really angry. Because mm. for me, my anxiety really manifested as kind of rebellion, anger, uh, F the system kind of behavior. So you're, you said this was like, you, you know, at some point I saw a date that it was like 1994, right? So yeah. you, you're, you're about a similar age to I am. I graduated high school in 1996. So I was doing all uh-huh. my, my crazy <laughs> stuff then too. So <laughs> were you listening to like Rage Against the Machine? Yes, I was. I'm a Nine Inch Nails fan personally. Yeah. <laughs> Just hard to love imagine. Nine Inch Nails. And Nirvana <laughs> was, I mean, Kurt Cobain was my personal hero. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. And then right into that mess dropped my first meditation book. And it was actually a book by Joseph Goldstein. It's called Insight Meditation. And I think what was so revelatory for me about that book was that first it named suffering. You know, it just said really clearly there is suffering in life. Second, it named a path out of suffering. So that acknowledgement, okay, people suffer. That was a huge piece for me, a huge step to just say, I'm not abnormal. I'm just having a normal human experience. But then that there could be a path and that that path could be a meditative path that could bring me from suffering to something more like peace or satisfaction or connection was hugely transformative just to read that. And then from there, I met a teacher and started doing retreats, uh, started doing quite long retreats. Even as a young person, I did my first month-long retreat when I was 18. I did a five-month retreat when I was 19. Uh, And then I did a series of two-month retreats during the summers during college and then moved into a Zen monastery and stayed there for six years. Wow. Wow. So is, is this our, our path to not being a hot mess is to abandon it all and go in, into a monastery on retreat? <laughs> Actually, I was, I was a super hot mess while I was living at the monastery. I had a long recovery period. I don't know that I really recommend that people go on months-long retreat or move into a monastery. For me, 
that was really core to my identity and how I kind of grew into adulthood. And it was important for me to go all in. But I think for most people, it's better probably just to meditate 10 or 20 minutes a day and bring more mindfulness into your life. And then through that, make the kinds of changes that are important to you. Yeah. Yeah. Not that sort of whole hog. I mean, it's interesting because though, I guess if you get, if I think back to the people I was around when I was partying in high school and if, you know, some of them are dead now, pretty young because actually I had a, someone who I spent a long period of time with, um, who was an ex-boyfriend who was core to that group of people who died of a drug overdose last year. And, um, and so if I think of that kind of intense energy of all or nothing kind of energy, if that kind of energy could be directed, (laughs) you know, if there is that all or nothing energy could have been directed in a, in at least a healthier way like yours, maybe that might've been, might've been helpful. But, um, but Devin, that wasn't, that wasn't your path. You were, you were straight A student. What, what got you onto the, the meditation path? Yeah, I in some ways was too wholesome. I <laughs> don't think I ever listened to Nine Inch Nails ever in my life. <laughs> I was listening to the Beatles in high school. <laughs> so yeah, so very different path, very different background. My family was very wholesome. I was an only child, really caring, loving, wise parents, very stable home life. Um but I think I was a very sensitive kid and so internalized what I now call sort of elements of whiteness, of white culture. Mm-hmm. Didn't really know that's what was happening at the time, but internalized a really high sense of perfectionism, um, like a lot of striving, overcommitment, overachieving, and just the sense of my self-worth riding on external grades, external approval, really needing, you know, someone else to tell me that I was okay. And so that dynamic really quite painful, especially as even a young kid, I remember being 14 and 15 in high school and just um, suffering so much from the sense of it didn't matter how much I, how hard I worked, how well I did in school, how many sports I played. It was like, my body was never quite right. My uh, approval, you know, it's like always looking for more and more and more. My friends weren't quite right. Um, just that really like deep sense of, um, you know, things being ungovernable, <laughs> which mm-hmm. I think now is like, no wonder I read this first, my first book on Buddhism in college as a freshman and the, the very first premise of the, the first noble truth, right? Of things being unri- unreliable, ungovernable all the control and um, kind of fix it attitude that I had was never going to work. And when I heard that, it was like such a relief. And in some ways kind of common sense, like, of course, I'm never going to have the perfect situation, but the culture keeps telling me, Oh, I just have to get the perfect boyfriend and the perfect house and the perfect job and the perfect body. And then things will be okay. And as I continued, it really hit, hit bottom my sophomore year of college. I was in a sorority under a lot of pressure. I was rowing on the lightweight crew team, under eating, over exercising. And I really sort of hit this wall where it's like, I can't keep doing this. 
And it was then that I read this book and, and really started meditating for real. So I was kind of hooked from the beginning. Like mm -hmm. what, so the book I read was When Things Fall Apart. Great Saving book. The children. Great <laughs> book. So relevant for right now. Even. Oh, always uh, so relevant. <laughs> so relevant. <laughs> but I was really, you know, even as a young person, I was like, well, this is what it's about. I want my whole life to be about this. So mm -hmm. kind of dedicated from the get go. That was similar to Craig. Yeah. It was, there was like some, there was some healing there of, you know, this, all this striving, this treadmill I've been on, that, that whole thing. This is, that it's like a wake up, like that this isn't working. And, yeah. and, and here is this, this path of um, accepting ourselves instead. Yeah. It was interesting because I could see, you know, I grew up in a pretty white town and I could see a lot of older women. I went to the gym a lot and I could see these older women on the treadmill, literally, mm -hmm. and reading the same magazines that I was reading. And I could see the trajectory. Like if I just keep doing what I'm doing, I could end up this way, you know, in the same mind states in my 50s and 60s. And there was a point, I remember it very clearly, actually, kind of just an insight that landed one summer. And I was like, I don't think I want to be like that. I don't think that's what I want my life to be about. Mm -hmm. And that was pretty transformative too. Like kind of that fork in the road place where I was like, I'm going to choose to prioritize something different than what I've been focusing on up till now. Yeah. yeah. What's, what's, what's really important versus what's, what our culture tells us is important. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. you, we wake up to that at different times or we don't, but you know, this, this feeling of like, Oh, all these things that everyone around me tells that tells me are, these things that are important are maybe not, maybe not so important. And what, what I really think is important. And a lot of that, you know, as we talk about here on the podcast is, really being present for the life that we have, being able to be here for our lives. And, and I think that meditation gives us a lot of that. So just, just to talk a little bit about that, but you have six, uh, six rules for how to not be a hot mess. So just give us the <laughs> overview first. What, what are those six rules? Yeah. So we break it down into these six chapters, um, six trainings or six rules. We call them different things in the book. And the first one is a suggestion that you could meditate. And we talk about the benefits. This is Devin's chapter because we, we trade off. But we talk about the benefits of meditation from a, mostly from an empirical scientific perspective, quoting a lot of research. Mm -hmm. And then the second chapter is don't be a jerk. <laughs> the idea here is that a jerk is somebody who causes harm. And if you cause harm, you will end up unhappy yourself. Uh, the third is give a little. And we again quote a lot of the research on the benefits of generosity. And then uh, fourth is say what's true and talk about all of the wonderful things about a um, wise speech. Next, my personal favorite, Devin's chapter, Make Sex Good. <laughs> where she she takes down the patriarchy and then the last chapter wraps everything up uh with this theme of stay clear mm. Mm. so meditate don't be a jerk give a little say what's true make sex good stay clear i i like i like these i like these titles and i'm, I'm glad that you have sort of brought them in is now maybe for you craig like are are and it any of these six that were more difficult than the others? 
more difficult to live or more difficult to write? To live. (laughs) To live. (laughs) Yeah. I think the most difficult for me is when I, when I really get into the subtlety of my speech. Mm. So I grew up in New York. Uh, I grew up around people who speak, I think on the positive end of the spectrum, they speak very directly. And on the not so positive end of the spectrum, I think there's a lot of harsh speech, judgmental speech, um, speech that causes harm or or pain to others and and to ourselves. And so for me, I've been doing these practices for more than 20 years. I've been watching my speech for more than 20 years. And it amazes me the things that still come out of my mouth. It's true. (laughs) (laughs) We have verification. (laughs) Kind of on a weekly basis. (laughs) We're both surprised. (laughs) You wrote that chapter? (laughs) (laughs) It's all right. I wrote a chapter. I wrote, I tell people how not to yell. And then I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. (laughs) Humbling. Yeah, Yeah, teaching these things in general (laughs) is pretty humbling. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the things that you, what are some of the ways that we can practice better speech? How, because communication is incredibly important to me too. I teach a mindful parenting course that brings together these two things, like that skillful communication and, you know, mindfulness and, and compassion, right? And I think that we can't really have one without the other. They really, they're, they're I, I almost, they're like the life skills like that everybody needs, right? Or we need some help with our communication. We aren't taught that, of course, but what are, what are what do you identify as some of the things that we need to work on in our speech and some ways we can improve our speech? Yeah, so this is the chapter that Craig wrote. First, he tells all the ways that you can mess up, you know, <laughs> um, and also acknowledging, you know, I know you've had Oren Sofer on the podcast. There's so many good teachings and books out now that are really based on the Buddha's guidelines. Um, so the Buddha lays out these four questions we can ask ourselves before we're about to say anything. So the first one is really basic. Is it true? And that one, it's interesting. We say in the book, it seems like it could be pretty simple and clear cut. And we might mostly think, oh, I'm, I'm telling the truth. But the research is different. We tell so many more lies than, what, than actually what we think. We're like exaggerating, stretching the truth a little bit, omitting information. So this in itself is a mindfulness practice. Mm. Like really first knowing what is true. Mm. That's already a, a practice for me, certainly an edge. And I think I'll just name like our historical moment right now. I think there's a lot of truth that's coming out that hasn't been true or invisible, hasn't been obvious, mm. deeply true. But many of us, I think, are waking up to deeper truths now. And so first, it takes some courage to look at that and be like, oh, this is what's happening. And then even more courage to say it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that first question, is this true? Is what I'm about to say true? Second question, is it timely? And this one is kind of my favorite. Um, We talk about in the book, like, you know, often something will happen earlier on in the day. And I'm sure this is in family dynamics a ton where like something happened and I didn't really quite like what Craig said. And it's been kind of bothering me all day long. And now it's about 11 at night. We're getting ready for bed and is now really the best time to bring up that little piece that kind of bothered me just a little, but actually really a lot. And I really want to say it now, but is that really the right time? 
Mm. when we're tired. It's hard um, to practice that restraint. Boy, <laughs> hard to practice that restraint, you know, like the eagerness, you know, we can get really interested in um, the body when we're speaking, because I notice so often there's this eagerness is leaning forward. Like I just got to get it out. Mm. And is it timely? You use the word restraint. It's a beautiful practice for sure. Uh, so third question, is it useful? And this one is a, also kind of a challenge you know, useful speech. Sometimes talking about the weather is really useful because you're making mm -hmm. connections and building relationship and rapport. Um, also, a lot of stuff we say probably isn't useful. You know, mm -hmm. we often have this habit of just speaking to fill up space. Mm -hmm. So that's a practice we can, we can notice, be mindful about what I'm saying. Is it really useful? Mm -hmm. And then the fourth one, is it kind? And I think with each of these, they can be so far unpacked. You know, first we need definitions of each. What is real kindness? And again, in sort of white dominant culture, we're taught that kindness equals being nice, being nice to each other. And for me, certainly that can come out in kind of a syrupy, little bit of a superficial kind of sweetness. Um, and learning like, oh, deep kindness actually can sound very fierce. Mm -hmm. It can be very direct even. And sometimes that takes an extra measure of courage to say what's true in a timely way that's beneficial and useful, but in a kindness that's like, yeah, cutting through often. So is it kind is the fourth question. It's interesting. It's like, how can, sometimes how can we know, right? Because sometimes that, that's, it's, whether it's kind or not is between you and the person who's, mm -hmm. who you're speaking with. And, yeah. and I think probably then it, a lot, a lot of times it comes down to our intention, you know, like, are, are we intending to be kind? And then sometimes you can say something intending to be kind and somebody takes it in a way that is, you know, completely the opposite of the way that we intended it. And so then, then what happens? I guess it's just part of the human messiness, but we want to, we want to own our, our end of the, the equation, I suppose. Stay tuned for more Mindful Mama podcasts right after this break. The other day, it was just my 10-year-old and I home for dinner. We were so lucky because she had a green chef meal to make and we made it together. And we made this orange sesame chicken salad with kale, cabbage, bell pepper, and carrots and sliced almonds. And you know what? She actually loved it and really had a good time with me making it. So I am so happy that we are supported by Green Chef, which is a USDA certified organic company that makes eating well and easy with these affordable plans to fit every kind of lifestyle with meal plans that include vegan, vegetarian, paleo, and keto. The recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step -step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. Honestly, it was really, really well made and easy to follow. Everything is hand-picked and delivered right to your door with pre-measured, perfectly proportioned, and mostly prepped ingredients. I have to tell you, I have been so tired of making meals constantly with the COVID pandemic and not going out to eat in some of the same ways we used to or doing different things at night. And this has made it easy with dinner options that work around your lifestyle, not the other way around. You can let them do the meal planning, the grocery shopping, and most of the prep work for you week after week if you want. 
Green Chef is the most sustainable kit, offsetting 100% of its direct carbon emissions and plastic packaging in every box. And it has a wide variety of high quality, clean ingredients. So you can feel great about what you're eating and how it got to your table. And these things really matter to me. Go to greenchef.com slash hunter 80 and use the coupon code hunter 80 to get $80 off across four boxes, including free shipping on your first box. So go to greenchef.com slash hunter 80 and use the code hunter 80. That's hunter and the number eight and the number zero to get 80 bucks off across four boxes, including free shipping on your first box. So true. Yeah, I think a lot of this practice is getting very clear about our intentions. Mm -hmm. And then you're naming this, we say it in the book too, I, I think especially for white people, being in tune with our intentions, which are often consciously pretty good, but then might have the opposite impact. You mm -hmm. know, the impact that happens is often not actually in alignment with what we intended. Mm -hmm. And so there's a deep humility, I think, that I've... I try to practice in terms of, oh my goodness, I can have the best intentions, but that's only half the equation. Mm -hmm. And so having the ability to admit my mistakes, to really see and be curious about how are these words really landing? Oh, wow. They totally did not have the impact that I had intended. And then taking responsibility for that too. You know, mm -hmm. it's not just all on the other person, how it impacts. So that's, I think, a deep training also. And mindfulness and these questions can be that bridge. I think the more we wake up to our unconscious patterns, the more our intentions can be in alignment with our impact, the more we can actually understand experience that's different from ours and perhaps have a little bit more foresight or anticipation into what our, the impact of our words might be. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lifelong uh, practice. Understanding mm -hmm. the other, and that might be the other in your world mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. out in the world or even in your family, like understanding mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, take, not taking the three-year-old's uh, actions personally, like the, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard not to take a three-year-old's actions personally. People assume a lot of manipulation in, in kids and, and, and very, that's very often not there. Like as far as when you look at developmental mm -hmm. things and, and things like that. But I, I have a question for you about these questions. Like, of course I've heard the, the questions, is it true? Maybe not, is it timely, but is it, is it true? Is it kind? Is it useful before? Now, when we speak, normally we're just speaking. Like when I am responding to you in this question, mm -hmm. I'm not planning out every cent, any, every word that I say, like haven't nope. planned all of these words. So how do we, how can we use these questions to practice when we're, we're maybe in, instead like looking, looking back on what we've said in the past? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is why it's such a subtle, mm -hmm. difficult practice, because first of all, we're speaking so much. You know, so much of our world is about speech, mm -hmm. and that's verbal speech, that's speech by text, that's speech um, by social media, that's speech on the comments section on the Washington Post, that's all these different kinds of speech. So we're speaking, speaking, speaking all the time, email, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, That's what makes this such a challenge mm -hmm. to, to track, it, track it moment by moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a, there's a, a pre-practice even to these four questions, which is the body. Mm. Yeah. And we talk about this 
throughout the book, when we are alive in our bodies, when we are really connected with our bodies, we can feel how it's going. You know, it's kind of like a barometer for our speech. If we're starting to contract, uh, if we, we feel that the body seems off balance, leaning forward, leaning back, tipsy-turvy, <laughs> sorry, topsy-turvy, <laughs> uh, that's, that's a sign for us to slow down. Um, that's a sign for us to be really awake and aware to what we're saying. So that, that body awareness actually becomes integral to how we are in the world. And from that body awareness, it's much easier to ask these questions in the moment. So like you're saying, we don't have a, a planned speech. We're actually speaking in the moment and we're counting on our own awareness of our speech through the lens of these four questions to help us be appropriate, appropriate and helpful and uh, connected to others. And at the same time, we make mistakes. And that's another theme of this book. Every chapter of this book talks about the kinds of mistakes that can be made along the way. Because my feeling is that you need a sense of humor. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna be doing this work, if you're gonna be doing mindfulness, if you're gonna be really starting to pay attention to the way you are in the world, it's either you develop a healthy sense of humor or you start to go crazy. Because you will never live up to your expectations. And I think also, you know, we sort of joke one friend, we had all these different titles for this book. And one friend was like, no, you should really call it How to Be a Hot Mess. Because in some ways, and we know as pra you know, practice, is all about really coming home to things as they are. And so as a sort of recovering perfectionist, <laughs> I'll say that the mistakes and the messiness is key. You know, how else would we learn? So a lot of it is sort of learning to embrace the really deep, hot mess that we're in individually and collectively, and first coming into right relationship with that, and then getting very curious about how it comes to be, how it feels, you know, do this, do that, notice what happens. A lot of curiosity is needed. Yeah. So taking curiosity rather than judgment to our challenges, to our mistakes, mm -hmm. taking a sense of humor to our mistakes, um, and that's such beautiful advice because not only does that allow us to then you know start again and again and again which is needed right we have to keep mm -hmm. beginning anew and beginning anew and beginning anew we have to keep starting over but it also like as as for i'll speak as parents like it allows us to say to be able to um when we're less judgmental of it, it allows us to mm. own our mistakes more mm -hmm. and to share them and to say yeah look at this, this is a mistake I made and that's what happened. And to be able to then, you know, te teach our children through modeling how, yeah, we make mistakes and this is what happens. It, and I think that acceptance of, of our humanity is really sort of like this sort of foundation underlying all, everything you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what was a, a favorite chapter to write or, and to work on? <laughs> what, what, maybe, Devin, what was one of your favorite chapters? Sure. Um, well, 
Yeah, I like the sense of humor that's embedded throughout. So I have little parts and stories that I like. I like a lot of Craig's stories about how bad he's messed up before. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Those are fun. But I think probably sort of the biggest chapter to write was the sex chapter. That was definitely the hardest. And it's, you know, we go back and forth. Craig wrote one, I wrote one. But this sex chapter has my name on it, and it has a whole lot of conversations behind it. So we had to really sit down and look at, we get a little bit cultural studies in this chapter, like big cultural forces like patriarchy, objectification, and co-modification. And I'll say it took a lot of us kind of pulling those pieces apart and noticing how they were manifesting collectively and in our own bodies for me to be able to name them. What is co-modification? Yeah, great. So I talk about sort of the three pillars of bad sex. Oh, great. And so (laughs) patriarchy is the first one, right? The one that basically says like men are first, everybody else comes second or third or fourth or fifth. And Mm. saying like naming how all of that, even for men, doesn't benefit them either. Mm. Um, So then objectification is the sense of our bodies as objects to own. And then co-modification is even one step further than that. Like these bodies are um, controllable, right? So they're like um, commodities that can be bought and sold and traded and are made to be put to my own use for my own pleasure. So when you get those three, that kind of cocktail mixed all together, you get like men are meant to control, objectify, and own certain bodies. And other bodies are just meant to be objects that can be owned and controlled. Okay. All right. So commodification is kind of how I would say that, like put turning it into like a commodity that can be bought and sold. All right. So was, was your sex not, not as good in in the beginning? (laughs) Do you have a good? (laughs) Yeah. My history, my sexual history. I mean, I think, yeah, it was very much not good, but naming, it wasn't about my partners. It wasn't about um, anything individual. It was so much more just because we were all at the whim of these bigger forces. Mm -hmm. And so those were really strong, powerful voices that didn't allow me to connect to what I really needed or wanted right? Wasn't allowing to be actually fully in my body because I was so much sort of um, outside my body looking at it, looking back at it as like, is this attractive? Is this lovable? Am I performing right? You know, am I enough for my partner? Mm -hmm. So with all of that layered on, it's like, well, how am I supposed to be in my body in the moment with this experience? Because there's so much overlay of judgment and insecurity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and and it's funny because I I appreciate the chapter on sex because in the sort of mindfulness world, it comes from this, you know, Buddhist tradition where it's like, there's all these people who have have taught from a monastic lifestyle, Mm -hmm. right? There's that whole thing. And, and Craig, you even lived as a sort of a monastic lifestyle for a little while. And that's held as an ideal. And, but I appreciate that, that you see the you know, the, um, you know, the commingling of mindfulness mm-hmm. and awareness with good sex. So mm-hmm. what are, what are some of the ways we can improve our sex life? <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting, you know, those who are more familiar with like a Buddhist frame, they'll notice that these chapters parallel the five precepts, mm. right. That are really sort of mm. guidelines or trainings for how to live a life that's based in goodness. 
Mm-hmm. And so traditionally we hear this, the, the fourth precept around like, just don't misuse your sexuality, right? Mm-hmm. Don't cause harm mm-hmm. through your sexuality. But we don't hear a lot about how can this actually be a part of our practice that's leading to goodness and intimacy and aliveness. And so a lot of what I talk about in that chapter, after I sort of name the big three, the bad threesome, I talk about like, how do we make sex good? It's about taking the body back, which is so much related to mindfulness, you know, learning to inhabit this body from the inside out, to feel it as something that's alive and natural and sort of mysterious and not something to own or control or fix or fabricate. Mm-hmm. So we talk about practices that can help you take the body back, slowing down, unplugging, uh, really like taking deliberate time together to explore, well, what do I really need right now? Maybe I just need to snuggle. Maybe I just need a good cup of tea. <laughs> That's what my body's asking for. Maybe we can just take a lot of time here and sort of explore in this mysterious way where there's not any formula not a template for what this might look like. Um, certainly breaking out of the mold of binaries or you know what we're sort of prescribed that we're supposed to do when we're having sex. The body doesn't follow those rules, right? Mm-hmm. So I think we can really use mindfulness and this attitude of curiosity again to let the body be the guide. And sometimes that can feel, I mean, certainly for me, a lot of letting go. It's scary, not easy still very much part of my practice. It's an edge for me. Mm-hmm. But I think that interestingly, these very Buddhist practices um, offer new avenues for discovering deeper levels of intimacy and what it means to be alive in a body and relationship right now. And I think it, you know, the idea of, of a, a meditation practice and a mindfulness practice, you know, I talk, we talk about a lot here as something that can reduce our stress response and help us to not like freak out at our kids so much. But mm-hmm. we don't talk so much about the fact that it, yeah, it can make you, you know, you maybe your mind mind is, you can, it's not wandering so much when mm-hmm. you're having sex with your partner and yeah, you can really right. be present and you can feel what you're feeling more mm-hmm. in, in a lot of ways. And I, I've thought about that uh, in various moments. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think, you know, it's good to ask, why don't we talk about it? Hmm. You know, why isn't this part of our lexicon and part of our teaching, even though mindfulness is so much about being alive in the body? Mm -hmm. And that's something I'm still exploring. I think there's a level of repression. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's also having to do, again, with patriarchy or also, like you named, Buddhism is traditionally a monastic culture. So there's a lot of sort of emphasis on restraint and celibacy even. So naming those dynamics and sort of the traditional, the historical roots has been helpful for me too, to sort of see like, well, why is this so kind of secret, you know? Mm -hmm. So tell me about, um, tell me about don't be a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What were, what were some of the stumbling blocks uh, in in being in that, in, in, in living that piece? Right. Mm. Living, don't be a jerk. Mm. So I I think I'll say pretty much I was never a really big jerk, you know, but I I think the stumbling blocks are like you've been saying around communication. 
Mm -hmm. It's so, it's so hard. I think we come back to this again and again and again, but how do we, how do we communicate in ways that bring us together? Mm -hmm. How do we communicate clearly? How do we communicate um, with our friends, our loved ones, our coworkers? (laughs) We communicate through conflict and difficulty. Mm -hmm. So one story that I tell in the book, I'm living in the Zen monastery. Uh, I've been there for a couple of years. So I'm probably 25 years old and I'm the work leader and the work leader in the monastery. My job was to more or less tell everybody what to do. So I had to, I had to figure out everything that needed to be done on the grounds. We've got six relatively large buildings. We've got 200 acres, um, maybe five of which are cultivated so we've got a kitchen that needs to be run. We've got groups coming. There's all these things to do. And um, I wasn't always the best leader. I wasn't always the best communicator. Talking to people who are between the ages of 18 and probably 80, telling everybody what to do. And there's this one guy in particular who was very explosive. Um, call him Anthony in the book. And one time I got really amped up about this project that we were doing and there were all these college kids that were coming and they were going to help us do fire mitigation and so i'm all excited about these kids that are coming and i've broken everybody up into like team leaders and we're going to have chainsaws going and we're going to be dragging all these branches all over the forest and i'm i'm amped and i'm downloading my vision onto the troops and anthony raises his hand and he says what time is lunch and i'm like dude, who cares? This is great. (laughs) And I move on with my meeting, not noticing the rupture that I've just created. And then I'm walking out of the meeting and Anthony comes up behind me, spins me around, throws me against the wall and tells me that I ever, if I ever talk to him like that again, he's going to cut my throat. (laughs) Whoa. (laughs) He needs some more meditation. (laughs) Yeah. By the way, monasteries are not what you think they are. That's another, that's a sidebar. So very masculine, very, very aggressive. He's in my face. He's, you know, his face is all red and he's sweating and he's got, yeah, it's pretty intense. And I had this moment of recognizing, oh, I totally uh, made him feel small. Mm. Right. So I had an impulse actually right before that moment, I had the impulse to punch him in the face because I'm from New York and because he's thrown me up against the wall, but I've got this whole like Buddhist thing going on and we're meditating six hours a day. And so there's this radio station moment where there's like, I could punch him in the face. I could yell at him or I could track back what just happened. And then my mind tracked back, tracked back, tracked back. And I'm, Oh, I just made him feel small. Now he's threatening to kill me. Interesting. And my whole body kind of relaxed. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. Not my perfect day for communication. And he dropped my shirt and he looked really confused and he walked away. So to me, that story encapsulates the process of learning to not be a jerk. 
it's not just about like, I'm going to be this perfect communicator at all times. I'm never going to cause harm. I'm never going to hurt people's feelings. But it, it's this awareness that I'm going to track with me that when I do something, like make, uh, make somebody feel really small, misuse the power that I have in the situation, hurt somebody's feelings, that I'm going to hopefully be aware enough and quick enough to recognize it and defuse the situation and act from a place of kindness. And so the whole rest of the chapter is like, all right, well, how do we do that? How do we act from a place of kindness? How do we act from a place of caring? How do we stay awake along the way to all of our not so good habits? And those are the, our teachers is like, what, oh, yes. what are these not so good habits? And, and, and so this is hard and unpleasant work. I mean, everything you say about Anthony can be analogous to a parent. And yep. as we lose it as our, at our kids, that's mm -hmm. when we're being a jerk, honestly. <laughs> like I'm being a real a-hole then and I'm scaring my kid and it's not yeah. helping in any way, shape or form. But this whole idea of tracking back is something that, you know, we can train ourselves to do. And some days we'll be able to, you know, do it, you know, after we do the unskillful thing. And sometimes we'll be able to move it further up the timeline. And that's, that's right. like, great, you know, and sometimes, um, you know, hopefully we'll be able to recognize that, you know, this, this train is going in this direction, you know, <laughs> before we, we get to that, that point of, of being a jerk. Uh, so, so part of it is just really kind of unpleasant, unwelcome stuff of like, oh, look, these are the places where I kind of am a jerk and, yeah. and being awake and aware to the, of those. And that's, that's kind of what you're saying, I guess. Right. <laughs> that is what I'm saying. And I think I'll just add one thing. So I don't have, we don't have children ourselves, but I'm mm -hmm. a psychologist and a therapist. And so I've worked with a lot of parents and the hardest thing, of course, is being aware in the moment, right? You've got three kids running around you. It's chaotic. You've got things that you need to get done. You need to get them all in the car. You've got an appointment. There's all these things going on. I don't know how you do that without mindfulness. <laughs> and so when I work with parents, that's where I'll often start. Like, hey are you willing to use an app for five minutes a day, mm -hmm. right? Like, are you willing to do five minutes of formal practice a day? Mm -hmm. And if they are, then can we, can we then move all of that, uh, the mindfulness that you're developing in those formal meditations to that moment where you're trying to get three kids into the car on your way to work and, you're, and they're not cooperating and you're getting really amped up. Because if you don't have the mindfulness practice, then it, it doesn't, I don't know how you resource yourself. So that's, that's no, what I, I agree. That's it's what like, I it's like a muscle that you don't have this, this muscle of stopping and being aware of all the stuff that's coming up and not reacting to it. I completely agree. And I also like agree that uh, even if it's just a few minutes of formal practice, a day really helps because otherwise, how do you remember all the other informal practices? Because then exactly. they just, you forget all the like mindfully washing the dishes that you intended mm -hmm. to do three months ago when you read that book. <laughs> you know, yeah. you need to have some anchor in your day. That's yeah. right. Yeah.
Well, there are so many things I could talk to you about in this book. I think that these things um, are all really good. I'm curious uh, about giving a little and, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's some wonderful stories in there, but I think it might be helpful to just kind of talk about your, a little bit about sort of your wrap up chapter and, and what are some of the ways that we can be clear and, and what are, what are, do you have some advice for the listener who is hearing your story, doesn't want to be a hot mess and maybe kind of mm. <laughs> whatever percentage hot messy right now and, uh, and, and wants to stay clearer? Yeah, staying clear in some ways is like the whole point of the book, basically. I think, you know, both of us have worked a bunch in the mainstream mindfulness movement. So Craig is a therapist. I'm trained as a classroom teacher and started teaching mindfulness to uh, advanced placement kids in high school who were just so anxious and stressed out and on anxiety meds. And uh, in some ways, it felt like this practice of mindfulness and meditation had been taken out of its context. And it was just another tool for them to keep doing what they were doing to get like, you know, very overcommitted and keep uh, exacerbating those patterns of anxiety and overcommitment. So what we tried to do with the book in general is like mindfulness is this whole package that comes along with all of these guidelines and contemplations and values. So when we know, oh, mindfulness and meditation is actually about staying very clear with what's happening inside me and what's happening outside. And that's no simple thing, actually. You know, when we start to sit down and really get clear about our hearts and minds, we start to see, oh, this action leads to this result. So while binging on Netflix right now feels like the right thing, (laughs) it might not actually lead to happiness later. I might actually start to feel like not so good. get a headache, right? Like not get the stuff done I needed to do. So we talk about how staying clear is certainly about meditating, knowing what's happening at any given moment, but then really being like upright about what do I care about? Getting clear about what are my values and then how am I living through these values? So we're, we're kind of a culture of addiction, right? We like short-term pleasure. So, and all kinds of things can be that. It can be food, it can be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be TV, it could be a relationship. And when we're in this addictive pattern, it dulls out our clarity, Mm. right? All these substances, these habits that we have keep us on this cycle. So at some point, Craig tells a story about his relationship with drugs and alcohol. At some point, we sort of have to cut that cycle and get very real and honest. Like, how am I living my values? And if I'm not living my values, what do I need to change? How can I simplify? What do I need to let go of? Not easy questions to ask. And it's not kind of a black or white thing. It's not like, oh, you should just stop drinking all alcohol, stop any kind of drug use. Uh, We talk actually a little bit about how there's complexity. You know, sometimes hallucinogens can really further our clarity in some ways. And so it's more like asking the question, you know, if I have this glass of wine for dinner with dinner, how do I feel the next day? Maybe it's great. Helps me relax, helps me get better sleep. And it's totally part of my practice. Maybe I don't feel so good the next morning, and so I'll make a different choice the next time. Mm -hmm. So it's very individual. But I think this value or this sort of guideline around clarity and being really clear with ourselves and others, this can be such a beautiful complement 
to our mindfulness practice. Yeah, I agree. And I think the the sort of glass of wine at dinner is a great example, I guess, for me personally, because like I grew up from in a family where we have a glass of wine at dinner and I normally have a glass of wine at dinner. And I've had, I've thought about that. Am I, you know, I can see that I'm, you know, it, it dulls me a little bit, but it's a, in a way it's a conscious choice. It's a conscious mm-hmm. choice to say, okay, this is something that I enjoy that relaxes me at dinner. But I've been, I've had this awarenesses recently where, you know, I don't, in, you know, I don't, in the, two, the second glass of wine doesn't feel as good. Yeah. But the glass right. of wine after, you know, more like five or 6 p.m. is like optimal for me. <laughs> Like 7 p.m. is like a little too late and perhaps <laughs> yeah. sleep, you know, but I, I can see all these different sort of mm-hmm. things. Mm-hmm. And I can see when I'm, I can see when I'm wanting it in a, in a, on, in a slightly more unhealthy way versus, uh, you know, a, a healthier way. And so then I can start to like question that. Right. And so it's, but I think that you're, you're right. Like that there's, so I want to offer for the listener, like there's room for, for Netflix yeah. and cheese puffs, and <laughs> <laughs> right? But it's just like totally. how much and what is how does it yeah. affect you? And, yeah. you know, and, and can we live our values and have some of these pleasures in a, in a balanced, healthy mm-hmm. way? Exactly. Very well said. Yeah. Did you have something you wanted to add? I just want to agree with you. I think it's about that moment to moment awareness. And if we're really awake to what's going on, we'll know what is the appropriate thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And what, you know, we'll even know tonight is a good night for a glass of wine. And then the next night might be tonight is not a great night for a glass of wine or whatever it is, you know, the appropriate amount the appropriate amount of email, the appropriate <laughs> amount of time on your phone mm-hmm. and on social media and on all of these different platforms that we play with. None of these are bad things, but getting caught by them mm-hmm. can start to feel like kind of a dulling thing. Mm-hmm. So the sharpness and the clarity, we fall in love with it at mm-hmm. some point. You know, there's this sense, especially through mindfulness practice, the more we do it, the more we are clear. And the more that we are clear, the more we fall in love with being clear. And then anything that gets in the way of that clarity starts to feel like heavy, kind of. Mm-hmm. And we just want to naturally drop it. Not in a moralistic way, but just in a like, I want to feel lighter. I want to feel good. I want to feel connected. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't feel good. That was the same experience I had with like when I was in college, I binge ate cookies, stuff like that. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and through years of yoga and meditation, it, it just kind of dropped away because it just didn't, I was just aware that it didn't make me feel good. And so I, I love what you're saying, Craig and Devin, and, and I just offering this to the listener. So if this meditation is new to you, there it may be hard and maybe you're doing this thing that's hard. You're trying to establish this thing and it's not pleasant. And you, you know, there's people promise all these wonderful things that happen, <laughs> but there is this place down the road where this muscle becomes this, this guidepost for you or the, the yeah. or this, um, this, this clarity that, that you've described. It's really beautiful. Yeah. So Devin, Craig, thank you so much for your humor and your honesty. Um, and for for coming on the podcast and for 
for sharing sharing this beautiful little little book. I think it would be a fun book to. I, I'm kind of excited to sort of like have this on my shelf because it's hot pink, letters, <laughs> and I'm hoping that of all the like numerous mindfulness books on my shelf, that one day my children will look at it and say, "Oh, look, this is it's just going to be a good one to just keep in the library if a future reference is my." <laughs> Well, thank you so much. And so how can people reach out and, and um, contact you if they'd like to? Yeah. So we love to connect with people and our website is the best way. So we are at Devin and Craig Hase, H-A-S-E, um, com, And there's a way to email us. You can sign up for our newsletter. We also really love mentoring. And I know you're a Mindful Mama mentor also. We just love working one-on-one with people. So if you're interested in that or interested in starting a practice or sustaining a practice, you can reach out and we're happy to connect with you that way as well. Also Instagram, also Facebook. So our Instagram handle is at Devin and Craig and our Facebook handle is at Devin and Craig Hayes. Lovely. And so we'll have a link there on the, the Mindful Mama podcast webpage. So um, thank you guys again for taking the time out of, um, we're not sure when this will air, but we're recording this during our, our quarantine periods. And mm-hmm. um, thanks for taking the time. And I've, I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Great to be here. With yeah, you. same. Thanks so much, Hunter. It's been fun. I love Devin and Craig's reminder that, you know, mindfulness is more than just being in the present moment, right? It is a whole package. It is guidelines and values, and communication is such a big part of this. Yes, yes, yes. I believe in all this lines up so well with the whole Mindful Mama framework and what we do here, you know? I've been recently thinking about like what is different from what we do in the membership and what, you know, in, in our coaching calls, what we've been doing and like what's different from the other methods. And I realized that the, you know, there's in the parenting world, there's this, there's this strange belief that you could just be like, okay, just say these things, just respond this way. And you're going to be able to just like, boom, do it like that. And I realized that for it, of course, it's not that way. And that's where the mindful parenting method comes in. You know, first we calm our reactivity with habits that steady the heart, understanding triggers, care and self-compassion. And then step two is compassionate listening. And then step three is speaking from the heart and mindful problem solving. We don't have to use punishments and threats. And and this is a whole package, you know, for if you are interested in going beyond the membership, beyond uh, the podcast, you want to take this work deeper, you want to spend a few months working with me uh, closely uh, with a small group of women, then like I mentioned in the intro, the Mindful Mama Transformation Coaching Group, I have a few spots open, I think still when this comes out. And it's a powerful program, and it really is about creating less stress, more ease, and more self-understanding, more self-awareness, more self-love, all from the inside out. And we and I walk you through that. And I really love, love these groups. It's an amazing thing to do. So if you're interested in that, go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash group coaching to learn more. We should 
have a link in the show notes. You could kind of flip over on your whatever your device you're listening on and find the tab and show the show notes. So you could probably find that link right now, actually. And learn more. Check it out. And of course, reach out to me if you have any questions. And whatever you're doing, whatever is going on in your life, whatever you're holding, and I know we're all all holding a lot, you know, we're, we're holding all these things happening, crises, the pandemic, the election, if you're in the States, like, oy vey, uh, the, you know, the, your kids school, it's so much. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that, right? Like we're holding so much. I would love to walk with you and help you hold that too. Um, and I'm just wishing you peace. I'm wishing you moments of peace, moments of joy, moments of stillness so that you can relax into all of this, to soften into all of this. That's our, our work, isn't it? Um, yeah. All right. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, I will be back with an amazing teacher that I really had so much, uh, such a great time talking to, Aura Nadrich, talking about how to recenter and replenish. And um, and I can't wait to talk to you soon. If you've enjoyed this, let me know. Take a screenshot of you listening to it. Tag me on Instagram at Mindful Mama Mentor. And uh, let me know your takeaways. What's what is what is coming to the surface for you? What is what is in your heart from this episode for for you? And I would love to know and, and have that conversation with you. And I'm wishing you a beautiful week, my friend. Thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to listen. I'm really honored that you spent this time with me. Namaste.